Uh, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, while you're finding it, uh, I've got a little bit of a survey that I wish to conduct. Uh, in a moment, um, some fruit will appear on the screen behind me. And I simply want you to look at the two items of fruit. Uh, first of all, we have uh, a, a slightly worse for wear banana that you might not be able to detect on the screen, but it is actually sprouting mold. Uh, so that's on the left. On the right, we have fresh, ripe bananas from the very source. And I just want to see which of those items of fruit you would go for. So uh, let's do a, a kind of clapometer. Uh, for this. So you, you can applaud the one you would most like. So uh, any applause for the one on the left? Yeah, the, 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 this is slightly controversial. Uh, the, the one on the right, which just about has it, but closer than one might have expected. Okay, next picture. This might be a little more clear cut. Um, uh, on the left, we have uh, yeah, uh, an orange uh, beneath the mould, or again, some, some fresh juicy oranges uh, on the right. Uh, clapometer for the orange on the left. Really? Really? Uh, and on the right. Yeah. Okay, next picture. Uh, again, uh, you're probably getting the idea now. Uh, who would like the strawberry on the left? Uh, and on the right. And final picture. Uh, the, uh, this is a lemon uh, on the left. You can just about work it out. Who'd like the lemon on the left? Uh, and the lem one of the lemons from the right. Okay, thanks for going with me on that. I think we'd all go, other than the bananas, which is always the subject of uh, a little bit of controversy, other than bananas, I think we'd go for fresh fruit over rotten fruit pretty much every time, wouldn't we? wouldn't we? I, th I think we just proved that. We've proved that. Now, here's the thing. I think it's fair to say that our society is pretty rotten right now and is producing a whole lot of fruit in keeping with its rottenness, insecurity, fear, anxiety, and pain. Would you agree? Yeah, there's going to be a fair bit of audience participation. It, it, it's the summer, uh, and so I'm looking for a bit of life. So uh, that, just stay on your toes. I'll be bombarding you with questions uh, through the talk. So uh, I think some of us would agree our society is pretty rotten and is producing some uh, fruit in keeping with that. At the same time, I think it's also fair to say that a lot of people in our society have written off Christianity as being completely and utterly irrelevant to the point they're never, ever, ever going to walk through the doors of this building because they see no point. Which I suggest is a massive problem because the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is the only answer the only solution to all the insecurity, the fear, the anxiety, and the pain that we see in our society at the moment, which begs the question, how then are we going to get the message out? How are going to, people going to hear the good news about Jesus? Well, there are two strategies that I think are doomed to failure, and one strategy that I believe is our only hope. Anyone interested to hear the strategies? 
Yeah, I'm liking this. You've got the wow, even a bit of reverb around as well. Okay, doom strategy number one, since you asked. In an attempt to appear relevant and attract people, I think we can be tempted to try really very, very hard simply to be like the world. Translated into the church, we treat people as consumers and try to lure them through the doors by offering the very finest coffee and the most cutting-edge music and the most entertaining kids' work or preaching. We kind of fall into the trap of thinking it is not enough for things to simply be good and true and faithful Everything needs to be ramped up to amazing levels all of the time. The problem is, there is always going to be somewhere else that can do finer coffee and more cutting-edge music, no offence to the superb musicians we had today, Uh, always somewhere else that can do uh, slightly more entertaining kids' work, uh, certainly better inspirational talks than we can. What's more, if we encourage a spirit of consumerism, then people are never going to put down roots. They're always going to be looking for something better somewhere else. So I suggest we don't fall for that strategy. Here's doom strategy number two. Again, in an attempt to attract more people, I think we can be tempted to take out all of the bits of Christianity that might appear offensive to our culture and instead offer Jesus with minimal commitment. It's like we do everything we can to make church easy. We try and keep services short and entertaining. You might not have noticed that, but some people do. Uh, We try and keep discipleship and evangelism optional, and moral standards low. As a result, we end up producing nominal Christians whose unchanged lives have perhaps deterred others from ever being interested. And I think this gets us to the very heart of the problem we're facing today. A faith that has been co-opted by consumerism and compromise, I would suggest, has lost its compelling force. Could it be that people are bored with the church in general because rather than seeing something different than the world, they only see a pale reflection of themselves? Remember, Jesus said that when the salt loses its saltiness, It's good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot. Maybe that's what is happening in the church, in our culture today. Because we've failed to become this clear, compelling counterculture, the world all the time looks at what the church has become and just cannot see the point. So, all that being said... Here's what I think is perhaps our very best strategy to win people with the good news of the gospel. You ready for it? Are you ready for it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to turn it into a pantomime, but uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Okay, here we go. 
I think, now I've got your attention, I think we need to show people that the gospel is good news by the way we live our lives. Or to put it another way, going back to the illustration at the beginning, I think we need to produce fruit in keeping with the gospel. And so each week over the summer, what we're doing is looking at one way each week in which the gospel, the good news of Jesus, transforms us. Among other things, uh, we're, we're looking at how it leads us from pride to humility, I think that was last week, from judgment to generosity, that's next time, from exhaustion to rest, from apathy to passion. And our topic for today, which is from bitterness to forgiveness. I'll tell you, if we simply applied all of this stuff to our lives, and we were the most humble, the most generous, the most passionate, the most rested, and the most forgiving people in this city, then for sure, our lives would certainly be the richer for it. And I'm also pretty convinced that the people around us would be way, way, way more interested in our message. And so, without any further ado, I want us to dive in and look at our passage for today. If you want to follow along, as I've said already, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to pick it up in verse 21. This is what Paul says, Since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you'll be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are His dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered Himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. I don't know what you think. In my mind, this is a deeply, 
challenging passage. Not least because I think we can probably all agree, can't we, that we live in a culture that is full of bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander. I mean, everywhere you look, there's evidence of it. It's like that there's this angst behind almost every conversation nowadays. In fact, I'm not suggesting you do this, uh, but even suggesting you don't do it will mean that some of you will now do it. Uh, That's up to you. I'm not suggesting you do this, but if you were to Google the word outrage, you would find 92 million links, including ones to outraged vegans, outraged gardeners, and even outraged knitters. Uh, I, I, I kid you not, when, when knitters were not recognized by the Olympic Committee a few years ago, it led to worldwide uproar, which if you think about it, could have led to a bit of a bloodbath. I mean, if they started weaponizing those knitting needles, I mean, it just doesn't bear thinking about. Now look, uh, I don't want to be flippant, well, slightly about the, the knitting thing, but I don't want to be flippant because some of these sources of outrage are legitimate, legitimate, and, and you will feel them deeply. But a lot of the time, it's like that there's something in us that makes us sort of enjoy fighting and destroying our opponents. We have this kind of perverse need to judge and punish others because we, we get this kind of kick out of righteous indignation. We, we get this thrill from feeling vindicated, and some of the time we, we, we can't even have a disagreement without ending up resenting the other person's opinion. So at one and the same time, we, we can have this love of knowing we are right, and at one and the same time also feeling deeply wronged. It's like more and more in our culture today, we get an identity from being viewed as a victim. But when I look at Jesus, I don't see a victim. I see someone who was willing to suffer because he had a way bigger vision of the kingdom of God coming into the world. And so, I think we need to guard against all the anger in our culture, or else it will lead to bitterness, and bitterness will lead to resentment, and the resentment will fester and end up defining us. And as a result, we will adopt the same tone and posture as the world around us, and our witness will be completely nullified. And I don't think any of us want that. So, I want to start things off really by considering how bitterness can creep into us, because it can very easily creep into us. How does that happen? Well, if this is something we need a guard against. And if this is like the, the default posture of the people in the society around us, we could very easily, unthinkingly, just go along with it. So what are some of the ways it gets in? Well, returning to our passage, verse 26 says this, and do not sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. 
Now, just to say, for starters, Paul's a realist. He acknowledges we are going to get angry at times. And I think also, I, I should point out, not all anger is sinful. There is such a thing as righteous anger. We see how the prophets in the Old Testament were angry against the injustice they saw all around them. We see this in God himself. We see his anger against the unfaithfulness of his covenant people. Jesus himself was incredibly angry, wasn't he, with the religious hypocrisy and oppression he saw. And I think it's possible for things to happen in our own lives that in an appropriate way causes us to be angry. But that being said, that anger has got to be part of a process of confrontation and restoration that is healthy. As one writer puts it, community isn't the absence of conflict, it is the presence of a reconciling spirit. And so, there will always be relational mess around us. I'm not promising an easy life. There'll always be conflict and tension and falling out, relational mess around us, but that doesn't need to be catastrophic. That there is a way of working through that to a place of health and stronger relationship. However, sadly, that's not always the case. Very often, we can be tempted to take in a spirit of offense, can't we? And when people do that, inevitably, at least, relationship breakdown and pain. Proverbs 18, verse 19, says that a brother who has been insulted is harder to win back than a walled city, and an argument separates people like the barred gates of a palace. And when this happens, not just out there, but in here among us, it can really hurt. Psalm 55 gives us an insight into this. It says, it's not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It's not my foes who so arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. Instead, it is you, my equal, my companion and close friend. What good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. It's painful. And so, there's an anger that we can process as a normal part of community life. We can work through this stuff, but there's also something that can set in that's this spirit of offense that has the potential to wreck relationship. And God's word to us is that we are forbidden from allowing this to settle in our heart because it is absolutely toxic. There's this fascinating section in Matthew 24 where Jesus says that one of the signs of the end times will be that many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. 
and many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So there's this kind of linkage going on here. It's like offense leads to betrayal. Betrayal leads to hate, and, and hate in some way leads to our love growing cold, and Jesus says this is a sign of the end times apocalypse. It's that serious, it's that catastrophic, it's like something happens in our spirit when anger isn't processed in a righteous or godly way that seeps in and unleashes untold disaster in the Christian community. One of the best metaphors for this that I've come across is the existence of spite houses. How many of you have heard of this phenomenon, the phenomenon of spite houses? Any of you? Well, let me educate you. Let me show you a few examples. First example on the screen. This uh, building uh, is in Beirut, um, it's called Al-Basar, uh, translated uh, The Grudge, and there's the clue. Uh, this building, uh, the front here, was uh, reportedly ordered by a man intent on ruining the sea view uh, of the building behind, and with it, the value of that property. The owners of these two buildings, they were brothers that badly fell out. This building at the front it is just 60 centimetres wide at its narrowest points, and it remains the thinnest habitable building in Beirut today. Here's the second example. Uh, the, the story goes that uh, the city of Alameda in San Francisco requisitions two-thirds of a plot of land, the, the two-thirds at the front here, the road and then that building there, two-thirds of a plot of land belonging to a guy called Charles Froling, with the help of the neighbour, the owner of the, the, the larger house in the background there. Uh, Froling took revenge on the owner of that other property by constructing this three-metre-wide property, 60 metres long, in the thin slice of land he had left between the road and the other property. And then here in the UK, final example, uh, because uh, planning laws are a little tighter here, uh, you don't get so many of these kind of buildings, uh, but property developer uh, with a name to die for, uh, Zippera Lyle Mainwaring, um, <laughs> She made headlines uh, a few years back when she gave this kind of garish red and white striped paint job to a Kensington townhouse uh, after the neighbours on both sides objected to her plans to demolish part of her property and rebuild it again. Now, here's my point. If we have a bitter spirit and spite gets in there, our spirits can become like a spite house and we are forced to live in something that we construct in our relationships that is designed all the time to offend and remind people of what they have done wrong. You can literally build inside of you and inhabit a posture of spite. And really, all the time, what it's doing 
is undermining and disrupting biblical community. Recently, came across the true story. It's been dramatized, made into a film. The story of a guy called Kevin Tunnell. Uh, after a night of drinking at a New Year's Eve party, uh, much against the advice and the counsel of his friends who pleaded with him not to do this, he nonetheless drove his car home. And driving his car home, he collided head on into the vehicle of an 18 year old girl, killing her at the scene of the accident. Uh, he was imprisoned. Uh, but the family of the daughter weren't content with that. They sued him for one and a half million dollars, but ended up settling for $936 instead, which sounds like a good deal for the guilty party. But here are the terms of the settlement. Every Friday, which is the day of the accident, for 18 years, the length of her life, he was required to send a $1 check to her family, written out in her name, to remind him of what he'd taken from them. He struggled to remember every week, uh, and as a result, there was another court case um, demanding that he stuck to the terms um, of that deal. And uh, he brought to the court case this huge kind of trunk uh, with all of the checks for the remainder of the time written out, dated appropriately, $1 checks written out uh, as required and offered to give them all in one go. And the girl's family said, no, we want you every week for 18 years to keep sending these checks. Problem was, those weekly payments didn't bring their daughter back. You know... I think often we can do this to other people. We say, you're going to pay for what you've done wrong. Uh, and every time you see me, you're going to have to make some kind of payment to me. And this is going to last as long as I say. Uh, every time we see each other, I want you to be reminded of how much and how deeply you have wronged me. But you don't need me to tell you, this doesn't build the kind of community that Jesus wants. Worse than that, as Paul puts it in verse 26 here, it gives the devil a foothold in our lives. It's like the, the devil is constantly surveying our lives, trying to figure out where he can launch an invasion. He knows we're forgiven of our sins. He knows that accusation cannot be made against us. If we're in Christ, we are forgiven. No accusation can stand. But if we refuse to participate in God's program of forgiveness, then we become vulnerable to the devil getting in and destroying us from the inside. Listen, on the cross, Jesus stood between the sins of the world and the holiness of God. And in a deeply, deeply, deeply profound way, he demonstrated that victory is found in forgiveness. Jesus proved once and for all that forgiveness is more powerful than bitterness. I mean, think about it. 
Without forgiveness, there'd be no other way for God to relate with us. He's holy. He's just. We've sinned against Him. We, we deserve judgment. We deserve His wrath. So what does He do? The Father sends His Son to suffer and die in our place, and then gives us His righteousness, His right standing as a free gift. If you like, he writes all the checks for us, gives them so there's no debt to pay. Now think about it. If the God of the universe can be sinned against and still descend to rescue us with forgiveness and mercy and love, who are we to not reach out to someone who's offended us and offer them forgiveness. I tell you, this is what Christians bring to the table. This is like our secret weapon. We are forgiven of our sins, and we are now set free to extend forgiveness to others. We are a community of grace. Famous atheist, Marganita Lasky, before she died, she said this, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Really, this is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. And so, in verse 31, Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you're His dear children. Live a life filled with love. Follow the example of Christ. He loved us and offered Himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So, I want you to be honest. Is there any of this stuff lurking somewhere in your heart still? If there is, you've got to get rid of it. You must root it out. Don't you see? It is completely and utterly inappropriate for people who have been loved and forgiven by God to still harbor resentment, bitterness, and unforgiveness to others. It just is which in theory sounds great, but I'm aware at this point some of you are probably still thinking, well, look, get real. I mean, you don't know what's been done to me. You don't know the wounds that I carry. You, you don't know the abuse that I've been forced to suffer. And I just want to say, that's true. I perhaps don't know, but I do know that people do horrific things to others. I know it's absolutely heartbreaking, but I also know through it all, our posture underneath it all 
still needs to be a willingness to forgive. Now, just to add, forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. That there can be wholehearted forgiveness and there still may not be reconciliation. You may still have to put boundaries in place for your own protection. There may need to be legal consequences as a result of what has happened. But underneath it all, the principle remains that we need to announce the verdict over people's lives that we forgive them. We forgive them. That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. That's what it means, or at least part of what it means to be transformed. Forgiveness has got to be more powerful than bitterness. Which begs the question, how on earth then do you forgive someone? How do we actually do this stuff? Well, there's a similar passage to this one in Ephesians. It is found in Colossians chapter 3. In that passage, Paul lays out a vision for the church as a brand new humanity, a people who have been transformed by grace. And in that passage, he says this. He says, since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Now, here's the thing. Learning to dress yourself isn't easy. You haven't had children if you think it is. You kind of go through year after year dreaming of the day when they're finally able to get dressed by themselves without everything being on back to front or inside out or just patently inappropriate. Like uh, a friend of mine who whose son opted to wear a full wetsuit to school on non-uniform day on the hottest day of the year last year. Uh, I was with my friend when his wife found out what had happened. He said, why did you allow him to go to school in that? How did he go to the toilet? Uh, the answer was, he didn't go to the toilet all day and didn't drink all day so he wouldn't need to go to the toilet and was dehydrated and ill for several days afterwards. But that's another story altogether. But we kind of assume everyone knows how to get dressed, but some people, they go their whole lives, not looking anywhere in particular. But in the church, in the church, we need to learn to get dressed. We need to learn to clothe ourselves. We need to learn to put on what God has given us, to clothe ourselves with kindness to put on humility, to dress ourselves with gentleness, patience, and forgiveness. So how do we do this? Well, here are a few thoughts. Number one, start off by being really honest 
and recognize the ways that you have actually been wronged. Recognize the ways you have been wronged. Now, don't be petty. If someone pushed in front of you in the queue for coffee earlier, that, that, that probably doesn't kind of rank as kind of life-altering events. But recognize where you've been properly wrong. Be specific. Be honest. Make a list if that helps. Recognize the ways you've been wrong. Then secondly, remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Learn to position yourself first, primarily, not as the victim, but as the offender before God who's been shown mercy by him. Might be healthy to just reflect back on a couple of your classic sins against others. Recognize that you are actually capable of some of this stuff as well. So this isn't just a case of me, the perfect person against those awful people who have dared to wrong me. No, we are culpable as well. And then allow yourself to experience the grace of God covering everything you've ever done wrong and learn to walk in that freedom. Remember what Jesus has done for you. And then thirdly, that then gives you the ability to release others from what they've done. You know, this isn't easy. Forgiveness is costly. Someone always has to pay the price. And what Christians say is, I will bear that price to offer you forgiveness, which is incredibly tough a lot of the time, isn't it? But what we're drawing on isn't sheer willpower. We're drawing on the infinite reservoir of the grace of God, which He has shown to us. And so, we're not primarily dipping into our personality. It's not about the kind of temperament we have. We're dipping into the fruit of the cross, our standing before God, a whole tsunami of mercy cascading down on us. We're, we're bringing that to bear on our relationships with others. Release them from what they've done. And then fourthly, resolve to maintain that verdict over that person's life. See, what the enemy loves to do is just rehearse people's previous sins against them. But love, true love, genuine love, keeps no record of wrongs. You've got to resolve, in the words of Ephesians 4 verse 3, make every effort, it's going to require effort, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. In other words, don't hold it over people. Don't keep demanding payment from them. Corrie ten Boom says, forgiveness ultimately is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. In other words, you might not feel like forgiving, but as an act of your will, you still can. Sometimes you'll have to fight to maintain the verdict of peace. 
But if you do, ultimately, this will lead to a season of rejoicing. Rejoicing over the healing power of God's love. Freedom and release from those spite houses and celebration that the kingdom of God is being released among the people of God here on earth. That's something to aim for. The words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, live together then in the forgiveness of your sins, for without it, no human fellowship can survive. Don't insist on your rights. Don't blame each other. Don't judge or condemn each other. Don't find fault with each other, but accept each other as you are and forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. My appeal would be, can we live like this? Could we be that kind of community here? Could we work towards that being true of us? I want to close with this. So I think it's important. If bitterness traps you in a spite house of misery, forgiveness opens a door to all kinds of incredible futures. The problem is, you just never know what lies behind the door of forgiveness before you open it and walk through it. What we can be sure of is its forgiveness that gives us the ability to influence the world around us. It's forgiveness that causes us to stand out from the culture around us. I mean, if you've ever met a wounded person, you quickly learn, don't you, that there are areas in their life it's not safe to go anywhere near because it's like this nuclear reaction ready to explode. You, you just know, do not talk about that thing with that person. Now, here's the thing. There are so many wounded people in our culture, aren't there? They're all around us. And the tragedy is they have nowhere to process their wounds. You know, there's a huge difference between wounds and scars. Wounds still hurt. Wounds still seep. But scars tell stories. Scars say, here's what happened, but I'm healed of it. It's like when we let go of the bitterness, the resentment, the hurt, and forgive, then the flesh around the wound slowly fills in and heals over, leaving a scar of grace. I tell you, this is one of the many things that's always blown my mind about Jesus. He rose from the dead, and what does he have on his hands? Not wounds, but scars. Scars. They're healed, but they're still there. And what's the story that the scars of Jesus declare? Here it is. The world crucified me, 
I'm the sinless son of God. They still crucified me. It was unjust. It was unfair. But I went through it, and now I'm back. And I'm back to forgive you and to say that I love you. It's like scars become stories of redemption. And I think this is part of what we need to offer to our broken, rotten world. Look, I was wounded. I I was a victim. But God healed me. And now I've got these scars which speak of grace and mercy. And the thing that made all of this possible was His forgiveness shown to me. I've got to be honest with you, it's transformed my life. And you know what? It can transform yours too.